0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking to Jodi Hilty about her new book, Corridor Ecology Linking Landscapes for Biodiversity Conservation and Climate Adaptation. Jodi, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on this show. Excellent. I'd love to start
0: off, if you could and are willing, give us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got to your career to date.
1: All right. Well, uh, I, uh, I actually grew up in Colorado in the mountains and uh, was really fortunate because I got to spend a lot of time watching wildlife. And in fact, sometimes chasing wildlife, I spent a good deal of time on my horse actually looking for mountain lion kills. As a kid, you could say I was a little bit wildlife obsessed. So it was no surprise to my parents when I went uh, into undergrad and ultimately got my PhD in conservation biology. Um, Coming out of that, uh, some people say, gosh, you're, you know, everything just strung together so well. For me, it felt like Things just sort of appeared and I took them. And at the time, they didn't seem connected, but they ultimately were. I started off um, as a GIS technician doing international land use planning. And ironically, I found I, I couldn't get abroad because I didn't have any experience abroad. So I was sort of the person in Washington, DC, supporting everyone. Uh, luckily for me, my colleagues realized I really wanted to go abroad, and they found an opportunity for me to go get that experience, thinking that I would come back and work again for that firm, um, helping a community-based conservation project in Zambia. So my second day there, I was watching lions pop up out of the grass and giraffe, and, and uh, I knew I had found my calling. It was just an amazing experience. I think I probably learned more there than I gained. So after that experience in Zambia, I actually went for the organ- to the headquarters of the organization that was running that project called the Wildlife Conservation Society and helped them to run their Africa program uh, for about two years. They had something like 80 projects all over Africa that were Taking really good science and uh, that that helped answer critical questions, and then doing that applied conservation, and it was an eye opening experience for me. And I realized that someday I wanted to run projects like that. Because of that, I ended up getting my PhD um, at the University of California, Berkeley, studying wildlife corridors, trying to understand how critters could move from one core habitat area to another Um, and that then led me back to the wildlife conservation society this time helping to run and eventually running the north america program for the wildlife conservation society where we spoke we really focused on large landscape and large seascape conservation including connectivity and wildlife corridors Um, and then about four years ago i had an opportunity to run my own organization, um, and I came uh, to the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative where I currently am as president and chief scientist. The Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative is this incredibly cool initiative that's uh, focused on connecting and protecting one of the world's most intact mountain ecosystems from the Yellowstone uh, uh, ecosystem all the way up to the Arctic Circle in the Yukon. So that's sort of a thumbnail sketch of how I got to where I am.
0: That is an excellent story. And I'm glad you ended up back on top and kind of taking a leadership role to help manage projects. Speaking of projects, I forgot to mention this is the second edition of the book. So, how did you and your co authors come to know it was time to write a second edition? <laughs>
1: Well, I'll never forget it because uh, Adina and I were at a professional meeting and we started talking about how woefully out of date our book was and how it was almost embarrassing to have it on the shelves. And we went and to actually talked to Island Press, the publishers, and asked, asked them if we could pull it off of the shelves, In which at which point the discussion moved to, well, really what needs to happen is you need to update the book. Um, and So we realized that, you know, there's there's just this burgeoning amount of information. It really is an exciting world in corridor ecology because so much new knowledge has been developed. Uh, We ended up inviting on this woman, Annika Keeley, who had just been doing her postdoc on connectivity and climate change. And among other things, she realized that in the time since we had written our first version, there were over 180 new papers that on connectivity and climate change, and we really did need to distill that information and get it out there. Uh, There were other things that were new too. For example, the idea of connectivity in the marine world didn't really exist when we wrote that first book. And now there's projects all over the world, so much so that we invited two experts to be uh, a part of this and write the chapter on uh, marine connectivity. There there are lots of other developments as well. I mean, the modeling that has gone forward and proliferated and that really the new technologies that help us to better understand how and where these animals will move and also plants um, has just completely flourished since we wrote the first edition of this. So it really was time to get out a new version.
0: Well, we'll talk about some of those updates here in a moment. I want to dive in and kind of give the readers a sense of how you start the book. You start with the background. And so for those that may not have the background or have kind of a, a moderate understanding of connectivity, give us a little bit of the background moving forward. And then also, I imagine it's quite difficult to draw the lines where one chapter begins and another chapter might end. Specifically, you've got two chapters that talk about the understanding of fragmentation and then approaches to conductivity. So as you discuss the background, could you also include talking about what corridors are and the different types, and then apply that to the discussion that you and your co-authors brought up about the consequences of fragmentation?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah. So... Really, in order to bring in, uh, especially, you know, if they're younger readers or people who aren't as familiar with conservation biology, we need to just sort of start at the problem point. And the problem point is, is that humans are all over the world. The human footprint is over more than 80 percent of the earth. And that means that once continuous habitat for nature is now often discontinuous. Um, and, and it also means that we've lost a lot of habitat. So animals that need larger ranges in order to have a sufficient number of individuals to survive over the long term, sometimes are now isolated in smaller fragments and will eventually go extinct if they're not reconnected to larger populations. So we, uh, begin by talking about that. And then we also introduce that on top of all of this habitat loss and this habitat fragmentation, the spreading apart of existing habitat, is climate change. So in the past, uh, when climate did change, nature was able to move more or less continuously across the landscape because it was still intact. And today, we humans have sort of inadvertently created developments and and essentially barriers for wildlife and plants to be able to move in a way that they might have uh, before all of this development. So that means that we have to be really thoughtful about how to go about preserving biodiversity and what kinds of tools we need. One really important tool, of course, is protected areas. Protected areas have been you know, for the last two centuries, really the way that we have been moving forward trying to conserve biodiversity. I think what we've realized in more recent time is that protected areas are still really critical and really important. But by themselves, they're often too small and too isolated to uh, to do the job. And that what we really need to do is be thinking about conservation at a landscape. Riverscape or seascape scale, really at the scale that, that nature functions. And so protected areas are embedded in those landscapes, but we really have to think about also how to connect to those protected areas so that uh, plants and animals can move and shift over time and space. Um, so that's kind of how the book starts is, is really thinking about those kinds of. Issues Now, did I cover what you wanted me to cover in that?
0: Yeah, if you could dive a little bit more into the the notion of corridors and kind of what they are, how we, how, well, we'll talk a little bit more, or I'll ask you a little bit more about designing them, but what exactly is connectivity? What is the corridor? What are we talking about?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, many people have argued over it. (laughs) over time. So what 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 I mean by a corridor is a specific geography that's been identified for um, specific processes to happen. So it could be entire ecosystem connectivity. It might ge- just be for a specific species like a grizzly bear or a jaguar or something like that to be able to move. Um, and so The first thing in identifying a corridor is identifying what you're trying to connect. Is it an entire ecosystem? Is it, um, uh, you know, maintaining river connectivity or is it maintaining uh, connectivity between two otherwise separate populations of wildlife? And then the second is then to define what the corridor is based on that. So depending on what the goal of the corridor is, what is the best place for that corridor to be put um, and there's all sorts of different uh, scientific tools and approaches for figuring that out as well as figuring out what the dimensions of those corridors might be um, but in any case ultimately a corridor has to be a defined geographical space i often think about them as being between Protected areas or or natural areas that will always remain that way, um, and um, trying to connect those so that they more or less function as almost like one bigger protected area, um, or at least that there's there's the connectivity between. So it might not be that there's uh, exactly the same habitat between those two protected areas. In fact, often corridors are. Impaired, they're not, they're not 100% intact, but they can still serve for, uh, to connect either the species or the ecosystem that, that has been identified as needing to be connected. Um, and so it might mean that, um, you know, either for, for some animals, it might mean that they pass through there every once in a while. So animals like wolverines who have an incredible ability to move might not live within a corridor, they might just use it occasionally. Um, Other critters that might be smaller, like uh, martens or something like that, might actually live, there might be populations in the corridor and the connectivity is really over generations of animals who are breeding within the corridor. Um, And the thing about corridors is, is, again, they can be of completely different scales. So you could have a bottleneck corridor like a road overpass or underpass. We have something like 40 of them just a little bit west of where I'm sitting in Banff National Park in Canada. And those are really bottleneck corridors within Banff National Park, where it's all intact, except for the Trans-Canada Highway that goes through the middle. Luckily, Parks Canada realized that it was a genetic barrier. Animals weren't able to get across. And so they built these structures, overpasses and underpasses, which are these little sort of very, very small corridors. Most of the time, corridors are much larger in length. So they might be um, along riparian corridors, for example, in uh, agricultural areas. And it's making sure that there's, they're wide enough and healthy enough that plants and animals can be sustained within them and or move through them. So that's a thanks for, small description. Yeah,
0: thanks for diving in and giving us that explanation. And a lot of times, and I, and I heard you talk about it with regard to kind of the biological benefits and the wildlife benefits, but you and your colleagues in, in these same early chapters start to detail some of the human benefits to conductivity. Could you elaborate on those a little further?
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, I can actually give an example uh, given our COVID virus, uh, uh, COVID virus world today, um, mm-hmm. you know, right in Canmore where I live, we have identified wildlife corridors that actually go around the town of Canmore because Canmore is kind of like a plug in the middle of this huge valley called the Bow Valley, um, and yet it's it would be the natural pathway for a wildlife to move. And luckily, they the citizens of Canmore long ago, realized this and and identified these corridors around it. Um, so they're really important for wildlife and wildlife movement, obviously, and they matter at the scale of the Yellowstone to Yukon region, but they actually also are places where uh, when it's appropriate at uh, most of the year, uh, people recreate. So right now when we're trying to practice social distancing, people are still trying to get outdoors. and this is a great place for them to get to. Um, Likewise, you know, just a little bit east of here in Calgary, they have uh, the Bow River passing right through the town of Calgary. And again, they have, they've maintained uh, the river corridor itself, um, which I think people really enjoy, but also they've maintained recreation within that corridor. Um, So those are, you know, a few of the values Corridors are also really important because they can maintain healthy ecosystem processes. So, for example, if we want to maintain natural flood regimes and um, you know, one thing we can do is make sure we're not paving over everything all the way to the riverbanks, but rather letting nature sort of absorb water and then slowly um, let that water flow out throughout the year. And and maintaining really healthy riparian corridors or, or green spaces around those rivers can help those rivers stay functional, which then provide us with clean water or clean air, can help mitigate flooding, and many other things. So those are a few of the examples of why corridors can be important for people too.
0: And for those that may not get out, to enjoy those green spaces and those beautiful spaces as often as we might like. You give some examples early on in your text about kind of when wildlife shows up in an urban setting uh, and trying to cross eight lane highways, do corridors benefit humans in terms of creating connectivity that allow those animals to go outside of those urban settings and continue to find tracts of land and continue to find places to dwell?
1: Um, well, I would say a, a great example of sort of an urban um, area that is working on its corridors and is in Los Angeles. There's actually a, a proposal to link the Santa Monica uh, mountains uh, to mountains that are further east because there's, for example, uh, there's a number of large carnivores that are quite isolated in the Santa Monica mountains. And so they're proposing this massive overpass um, that I think it's over maybe even a 10 lane highway. I I can't recall exactly, but it's huge. And in this case, it's uh, the benefit is really for the wildlife, right? Getting ensuring that those wildlife that people enjoy and like to know that they're there can be sustained in the Santa Monica mountains by connecting with a larger population. Um, also within the city, you know, they're, they're right now in Los Angeles working on widening river corridors and creating more recreational opportunities for people. But also that offers people the opportunity, for example, to see birds and see some of the smaller mammals that can flourish in these uh, more urban corridor environments. So these urban uh, corridors can be important for both people and wildlife
0: Yeah. Thank you. Y'all spend a good amount of pages discussing design objectives when it comes to creating corridors and connectivity. And we've started to talk a little bit about that, but could you explain how those get established?
1: Well, sure. So um, design considerations are really important because, you know, one can go out on the landscape and say, oh, this is really, really important habitat, but not really understand why it's important. Um, And without doing so, you can't really assess whether you've been successful in conserving um, Mm -hmm. what you hope to conserve. So we talk about a number of different ways to do that. One might be, you know, really thinking about what is the focal species that matters. Um, If it's in a marine environment, it might be whales or it might be turtles that we're thinking about. Um, If it's in the terrestrial environment, it could be pronghorn antelope or, um, you know, uh, moose or black bears. Um, And then, you know, we have to understand sort of what are the habitat requirements of those focal animals that we're looking to ensure that the populations are connected for. Um, And that helps to develop sort of where we think that their ideal habitat is as well as what kind of habitat might best help connect these otherwise isolated populations and then understanding you know their dispersal considerations so in the Yellowstone to Yukon region right now grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park have been isolated for many decades from their northern cousins kind of on the Canadian US border um, and and they are those Yellowstone bears are less genetically diverse than their northern cousins. They're not in trouble yet, but over time um, that could be an issue if we don't reconnect them. Luckily, right now they're getting closer and closer together, and many people in the natural resources and conservation community are working on making that happen. Um, One important consideration is who do we care about? Do we care about those male grizzly bears or do we care about those female grizzly bears? Ultimately, we argue that you want to have demographic connectivity such that you have both males and females connecting. We know in the example of this grizzly bear issue that we have grizzly bear males that will disperse far and wide. So we saw Bears from northwestern Montana this year zoomed down into the Idaho wildlands, the central Idaho wildlands, one of the largest and remotest regions of the lower 48 states. Well, that's great, but no offense to males, but, you know, males don't necessarily really count if you don't have females. Now, female grizzly bears disperse by uh, essentially Setting up a home range right adjacent and sometimes overlapping with their moms. And so, to get a female grizzly bear the same distance might be several generations. And it means that they have to be able to live within that connectivity zone without getting killed by people. So, understanding how these wildlife move is really important. And then also understanding what What's needed to incentivize them to move um, as well as to keep them alive. So in the case of grizzly bears, the number one cause of death of grizzly bears in the lower 48 states is human caused death. So we've got to increase the the coexistence, the ability of people and bears to share that landscape. Um, with other species that are specialists, so they might require certain types of food or Other uh, variables in the landscape that don't exist everywhere, those kinds of special needs need to be taken into account in order for a corridor to be successful. Um, um, And then, of course, we have to think about physical limitations. I was talking about the Canmore um, situation with the wildlife corridors that are going around Canmore. Um, Right now, this year, there's a sort of an ongoing a healthy discussion within the community between the province, a developer, and the community, uh, and particularly the scientists about um, how animals can move across the landscape and how steep of a slope animals can move on. So, um, in this particular case, the developer uh, believes that, that animals can move across more steep slopes. But the science really shows that um, if we really want to have good connectivity for wildlife, that we need to have gentler slopes maintained as part of those corridors. Um, and so understanding their what their physical limitations are is really important. Um, and then, you know, just understanding um, also, um, you know, what are their requirements in terms of um, habitat type? and how that habitat might change through time and space, particularly given climate change. Um, And so I think, you know, one of the really neat um, pieces that I was really excited to have part of this book is talking about climate wise connectivity. You know, how, how can you predict how climate change might impact where and why and how you need climate change over time. And of course, we have to think about those species that fly. So species that fly don't necessarily need continuous corridors. You can actually have stepping stone corridors. And the same can be said for marine critters um, where their propagules from, let's say, one coral reef need to disperse to another. Well, the way to do that isn't isn't so much focusing on preserving the, the ocean current, which carries those propagules, but instead, Making sure that the marine protected areas are connected through these currents such that those propagules successfully land uh, in a place where they can reproduce successfully
0: those are great points to be made, and you beat me to the punch moving towards the climate wise connectivity chapter uh, before we get there though i heard I heard some statements about how your' monitoring you're watching the grizzlies you're talking about coral reef to coral reef could we pause and could you tell us a little bit more about the tools that you and your colleagues use to to take measurements to give us an understanding of how these species are moving across the landscape
1: sir sure. um well in the in the case of grizzly bears we have Uh, A really good example, there's a scientist named Michael Proctor, uh, who has been doing work on the Canadian, British Columbia, Montana, Idaho border area. And early on, one of the things that his research showed is that what once used to be a continuous population of grizzly bears is now uh, uh, a bunch of smaller semi or completely isolated populations. And he was able to detect this using genetics. So basically showing that um, bears in these smaller populations were um, not not, um, mating with bears from other adjacent populations. And when you look at the data, you can almost see um, where the roads and the associated development along roads is actually sort of isolating these populations of bears. Um, In that particular area, what was really exciting is groups of about 60, actually uh, different groups from agencies, government agencies to nonprofits and even um, private businesses all pooled together to work on uh, two things, really. One is making sure that the private lands That were modeled by by Michael Proctor and his colleagues to be the best available connectivity between these areas were um, conserved, such as through outright purchase or through conservation easements, and then restored. Um, But also, really working with the people living in and around these areas on coexistence. And so that means things like putting up electric fencing around beehives. Around apple orchards, around chicken coops, around things that are attractants to bear to bears that ultimately often mean that the bear ends up dying. and all of this work happened over much more than a decade. and what was really cool is Michael Proctor, the scientist, had continued to monitor these bears using uh, GPS collars, and he was able to show that these bears, as the populations rebounded, actually started to use the corridors that were Conserved and restored for these bears, uh, which is a good suggestion that it that it actually worked. Um, In other places in the marine environment, it's more about modeling how the ocean currents are moving. So there's a nice example in the Caribbean where a number of countries are working together on a uh, kind of a marine protected area design, and they have to understand sort of how those ocean currents are moving. And, um think about how close together and how big those marine protected areas need to be uh in order to be functional over the long term.
0: I appreciate that I, yeah, I do want to dive into a little bit later some some more of the technologies available, but I want to continue on now to what you had already started, which was this new contribution to the second edition and you even began our conversation with how many new publications are out there on this climate wise connectivity. So tell us how this field's evolving.
1: Well, it's pretty incredible. Um, I guess I would start off by saying when, um, when we looked at the numbers of, excuse me for a second, <laughs> Nothing like having a cough during the time period of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone thinks I'm going to kill them. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so, so um, when you look at the reviews of climate science papers that are trying to uh, propose ways that during this time of climate change that we can conserve biodiversity, they make a few major recommendations over and over and over again. Um, and some of those recommendations are we need more protected areas. protected areas need to be bigger and always in there is that these protected areas need to be connected. In other words, we need corridors. Um, and so this really is a major tool that's out there. However, um, if you look really across um, the, the legislative world, um, there the legislation hasn't really caught up to that. So, for example, in the United States, we have things like um, national parks and we have wilderness areas and there's legislation associated with those. And we have monuments and those are sort of those protected areas, if you will. Um, But we at this time, um, only a few states have any sort of legislation around wildlife corridors and ecological connectivity. Although there, for several years, uh, many groups have been supporting the idea of corridor legislation, also at the federal level. Um, so hopefully, that will happen someday. But that's also to say that the science recognizes the need for connectivity, um, and there are certainly tools that can help it, um, like working on private lands, such as through easements and so forth. But as a as a society and around the world we've been a little bit slow to actually develop the tools that can help us um, to achieve that. So coming back to the issue of climate change, um, climate change sort of exacerbates the, the reasons that we need to have connectivity because we know all the science is showing that animals are increasingly shifting their ranges. So a range is where uh, maybe you know a species of butterfly might have existed for many many years, and it might you know have existed say in Wyoming, and now it's beginning to shift north into Montana or something like that, right? Um, so in many cases they're shifting poleward, poleward, so towards the North Pole or towards the South Pole, um, but also um, you know in some cases the climate velocity, you know how fast the climate is changing and how fast animals can move sometimes exceeds how fast an animal can move. So if if animals have really limited range, like trees, for example, sometimes it can be hard uh, for them to shift fast enough to keep up with climate change. Um, And so we have to look at other kinds of uh, ways for species to adapt. One of those ways is actually sort of human translocation. And so we've seen some examples, the Nature Conservancy, for example, has actually taken trees that they forecast will be, um, sort of best situated for the future climate and began to plant them in places that those trees never appeared before, sort of north of where they currently are. Another way is to, um, really focus on, um, geographically complex landscapes. And so those would be things like mountain ranges, because there are different slopes, there are different aspects, and there are different elevations that a species can move and they don't have to go quite as far to find that kind of climate uh, niche, if you will. Um, And so these are some of the factors that you have to think about um, in terms of looking at, you know, where these critters are gonna go And then also thinking about what that pathway might be from where they currently are to where they might be in 50, 100, 200 years. Um, And so, you know, ideally, if we're going to designate a geography that's going to be for ecological connectivity, we want it to work not only for today, but for the future. And and in fact, it's really critical because um, we can't set aside everywhere and you know, most places on Earth are seeing just increasing human development, which means it's harder and harder um, to maintain natural areas for wildlife corridors and connectivity. Um, and so we kind of have to try and get it right the first time um, and and make sure that it's something that can be used uh, through time and space. Um,
0: Yeah, so this, I mean, it was a great addition to the second edition, and I appreciated reading it and learning more about the field of climate-wise connectivity. The whole book as a whole provided theoretical and a ton of empirical evidence talking through all of these concepts. And one thing I really appreciated was that you and your co-authors didn't really gloss over some of the pitfalls, and so you dedicated a whole bunch of pages, a whole chapter to some of the pitfalls and perceived disadvantages of of linking uh, landscapes. Could you provide some of that and then also talk about why it's so important to recognize them?
1: <laughs> sure, I'm laughing because uh, this discussion just came up last week on a different project I was working on um about you know, how valid are the pitfalls, um, there are really, uh, valid concerns about corridors. I think for me, the most important consideration is the balance between, um, using scarce resources for conservation, either for corridors or for protected areas. So obviously we can't use resources for corridors if we don't have protected areas to connect, um, and, and, and so it's a question of, you know, if you have scarce resources, what do you do? And I think it's really important to evaluate which is going to have a stronger impact on the long-term conservation of either the target species or of biodiversity overall when making that decision. Another issue around corridors is often um, they can be fairly narrow. Um, Paul Byers, who's a scientist down in Arizona, recommends that in general, corridors should be about two kilometers wide. (laughs) And that's great. Um, But in some cases, in urban areas or highly developed landscapes, we don't have that left. And so sometimes there are areas within corridors that are much more narrow. Um, And we have to be aware that if we do that, there, there can be an impact to whether or not species use them. And one of the issues that arises is edge effects. So, um, for example, in highly urbanized landscapes where corridors are passing through, you can have a lot of dogs and cats. And we know that um, in many cases uh, that those dogs and cats can have a pretty adverse impact on um, the composition of wildlife in adjacent forests, meaning that they're going into those forests, they're hunting um, wildlife, whether it's lizards or small mammals or what have you. Um, and likewise humans sometimes, you know, in Africa, some of the wildlife corridors um, for things like elephants can be uh, a sort of a death trap for elephants where there's poaching. So those kinds of considerations have to be part of the corridor design because um, you know, edge impacts can can be pretty profound and actually stop those corridors from being effective. There are also more subtle edge impacts. So let's say that we design uh, a corridor for some sort of amphibian, maybe a frog or a salamander. Um, these might be interior animals, and and we might have sort of wind desiccation. Um, meaning it's drying out the edges. And so though even though you've designed the corridor to be a certain length or is, and certain width, that width is actually much functionally much narrower for that animal than you might expect. Um, you know, the other thing that we have to think about is for specialist species, um, you know, we talked about how a lot of times wildlife corridors are not um, they're 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 not protected areas they're they're not totally intact sometimes there's human activities recreation or uh, minor developments in those corridors and for some special species those corridors might not work or they might be second growth and and that species might not be able to move through second growth so um, really again it's it's going back and thinking about what the target is what animal you want or plant you want to move through it and whether that corridor as designed can serve that purpose. Um, There are also a lot of other fears that are put forward about corridors, most of which haven't been substantiated, like um, that um, they could be conduits for uh, non-indigenous species or non-native species. Um, Most of the time when we see that happen, it's really things like dogs and cats at the edge coming into that, that area Um, So, you know, those are some of the considerations. Um, Another consideration, which again is mostly theoretical because people aren't necessarily doing this, but if there's two habitats which were naturally isolated, maybe it was because of the last glaciation or whatever, and people try to reconnect them and get uh, some focal animal to move uh, among two. Uh, Populations that have always been naturally isolated, you can actually affect the local genetics in a negative way because sometimes animals um, that are isolated like that um, naturally adapt to local conditions and have uh, different genetics that help them to survive to those local conditions. And you can actually sort of um, impact the overall health by reconnecting populations. But like I said, we haven't actually seen that in any. restoration projects. It is a theoretical consideration.
0: Thanks for detailing those for us. And I I specifically am really interested in your last chapter where y'all move into the discussion and you've already talked a little about some of the cases where there's some state work being done, but you talk about policies, you talk about working landscapes and kind of programs to move them forward. But Outside of the policies and the programs, what are, the, what are some of the newer technologies that are available now that weren't available during the writing of the first edition? What measuring technologies, monitoring technologies, you talked a little bit about models. What are some of the newer technologies that we can use to monitor and measure and, and other tools that we're, we're able to use now that we didn't have? 15 years ago?
1: Sure. Um, well, I mean, one of the things is that the new kinds of um, uh, technologies that we use to actually identify and map corridors. One of my favorites is circuitscape technology. And what they what we've done is we've taken, we meaning that the ecological community I've taken electric circuit theory, like how electricity flows, and adapted it to, to figure out how wildlife might flow across landscapes. And um, what it can do is it can help identify potential pinch points, which um, might need either to, to be conserved before it's completely blocked off or maybe need some restoration. Um, and and what's really neat is it can operate at so many different scales. So there are circuitscape connectivity models at the scale of the United States. and there are also circuitscape models that are designed between two protected areas. So it really is uh, multifaceted that way. But there are least cost path analysis, which is um, trying to figure out you know if you have an animal and it's trying to move from habitat A to habitat B, you can assign each cell in the space between those core habitat areas with sort of um, a, um, a value that assesses how easy it is for the animal to move across that. And it, um, based on, you know, whether there are roads, whether how many human beings live in that landscape um, or other factors so that you can then begin to figure out if, if you know, if you really are going to get this animal from, habitat a to habitat b what is the most likely pathway to get them to success um and also um they say least cost path because it's also um it's it's trying to minimize the amount of wandering that it does um between those two places right because that's important for us we can't again um uh, use con- limited conservation dollars for uh, Larger wanderings, if you will. Um, So those are some of the kinds of models that are out there that can help us. I think another really neat uh, development is, um, I mean, of course, GPS collars and actually getting them on animals and seeing how they move has has really revolutionized what we understand to be true about the needs of animals that really move at large ranges. So in the Y to Y region. One of the wolves that really helped to explain why we need to conserve a landscape at the scale of Yellowstone to Yukon was an animal named Pluie. Um, She started off, um, she was a wolf and she started off just south of Banff National Park. She crossed through Alberta, Montana, Idaho, Washington, and into British Columbia. She did a hundred thousand square kilometer jaunt. Um, and, and I think what she really showed us was that while protected areas are important, that um, animals like wolves really need a much larger landscape to function in and they need that connectivity. So GPS colors are also really important. Another new technology concerns sort of both um, the use of cameras and genetics. So right now we're um, working um, with the University of Calgary on a study of wolverines. And um, we're, you know, it's, it's a non-invasive study meaning that we don't touch the animals. We just put out these stations that allow us to snag a little bit of hair uh, for the genetic work, and also take photos because we can actually identify, for example, if females are lactating, whether they're actually having babies. Um, and that, um, in turn, the genetic information, as well as the reproductive information can help us, as we go back to model these populations, how big are they? How many are there? Um, how related are these populations? Or are there barriers between um, populations maybe because of human development in between? Those are some of the really neat um, technologies that, that we see in use today. And there's lots of other ones as well.
0: Yeah, I would never have thought the way that y'all have extended theories and practices from other fields and brought them in and, and how well they're adapting to the connectivity studies. So I'm recognizing that we've taken up a huge chunk of your time and we're really appreciative. So I want to finish up with one last question and that is what are you working on now?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that my two big projects right now are number one, working with the IUCN connectivity specialist group to establish global guidelines for ecological connectivity. Um, And so what that requires is moving from science, like in corridor ecology, to a translation of what needs to be done from ecology to law and policy and to on the ground practice. And Um, The way that IUCN works, um, it's the largest nonprofit in the world, and it's um, for nature conservation, and um, it's about getting to global consensus. So this fall, we put out this 50-some page document for review, and anyone in the world can review it. So we had more than 110 pages of comments on that, and, you know, Get to global consensus means addressing each one of those comments in a way that's satisfactory. Um, The ultimate goal of establishing global guidelines for connectivity is to move us towards a consistent community of practice that really is using the best available science and to move us towards law and policy and regulations that can help us to better achieve landscape level connectivity, and the establishment of wildlife corridors through time and space. And then, of course, um, as the president of the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative, you know, we are really working towards connecting and protecting the Yellowstone to Yukon region so that both people and nature can thrive. And that's taking things like the global guidelines um, that we're working on and working on implementing them right here in the Rockies. Um, and using all the different kinds of tools that we need from, um, you know, where there is a need for establishing core protected areas, we're moving that forward. So for example, here in the Yellowstone to Yukon region, just in the last six months, we've had three new announcements of Indigenous-led protected areas that are enormous in size. Um, And that's really, really exciting. It's addressing cultural conservation, as well as biodiversity conservation. Um, And we're, we've got commitments for some new uh, wildlife uh, uh, crossing structures over busy roads from Idaho um, up into British Columbia and into Alberta. Um, And we're also working with land trusts on securing particular uh, pieces of land that we know from science are very important for landscape level connectivity. So it's about advancing this, this incredibly huge vision, um, uh, you know, for one of the world's first large landscapes and landscape visions.
0: Jody, a consensus based global guidelines sounds huge and we wish you great success in that. And also really excited to hear about the indigenous led Programs and initiatives you've got partnered and going on. Uh, We're really thankful that you were able to join us. It was great and take care.
1: Well, thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate the time and I appreciate your interest.